0: Chapter 11, verse 1. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles too had accepted the word of God. So when Peter went to, to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers took issue with him. They took issue with him. They're going up to a disciple of Jesus and they're taking issue with him. They're ready to go head to head with one of the apostles and they're, they're angry with him saying, You went to uncircumcised men and shared a meal with them. Now this is like... I can just see like they're angry. They're taking issue with them. They're getting in their face. They're using covenant-violating words, uncircumcised, ate with them, all that kind of stuff. I just have this image when I see things like this. So when I was in Israel, we went up into this um, Greek monastery um, way, way up in the hills. Actually, where um. For your eyes only, if James Bond was filmed in the last scenes, um, that was kind of cool for me because I like James Bond. Before I grew up, it became fully aware of how much of a male chauvinist pig he was. Um, but here's the thing: um, and there was this guy. We had we didn't realize that there were certain parts of the monastery that were forbidden, and um, and we had gone through this little like wooden gateway, and it just kind of swung open. And we were like. <laughs> right i mean if you're not allowed in it in america it's locked up but that's not true in other parts of the world in other parts of the world everybody just knows this image means you're not allowed in and it was like it looked it was like a little gate it was like you could see through the lattices and that kind of stuff it was about up to my waist and we swung open we went in we were just looking we didn't touch anything i had great respect for everything we we're just looking around and all of a sudden We just heard at the top of a voice some guy yelling, FORBIDDEN! (laughs) And we turned around, and there was this Greek Orthodox priest with this tall black hat on his head and a big, long, white beard. And he had these robes on, and he had the robes, and the robe was buttoned at the top but not at the bottom. And he was running, and the robes were flying behind him like a cape or like Neo from The Matrix, okay? (laughs) Okay. And he was just like, forbidden, forbidden, and yelling it. And I was like, oh my gosh, I'm going to die. I am in a foreign <laughs> country, violating on sacred ground. And it was like, okay, well, and we just backed out as fast as we could. And that's the image that always pops in my head when I think of people like this coming to you, like, you just did this, forbidden, okay? And it's like, it's the image that pops in my head, um, that was years ago, but that of all the things that happened in Israel, that image is like more clearly burned in my head than any other time. But this was kind of Peter's same reaction. Yes. Like, when the when he had the vision, it's like, no, I can't do that. Yes. And you, you imagine that too. Very great insight. Imagine that, like Peter's, still probably still trying to grasp this. I mean, just because he saw it with his own eyes and kind of took back his passive-aggressive insult, doesn't mean that he's fully embraced this. And how do we know? Because later he's actually going to exclude himself from the Gentiles intentionally. Like When other Jews come in, he's going to get up from the Gentile table and move over to the Jews and be like, no, no, I wasn't with them. I don't want you to see that. Right? And Paul's got to get in his face and like, forbidden! <laughs> like, <laughs> like, right? So like, yeah, he's still grappling with this. And even a few years later, he's still going to be hypocritical. Still, yeah. So this, 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 he, he, Yeah, now he's got to defend this and he hasn't even fully grasped his own argument yet. But Peter began to explain to them, point by point, saying, I was in the city. Now, his only defense is, let me just tell you what happened. I don't have a fully developed theological argument that I can give you yet. All I can say is, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in the trance I saw a vision, object, something like a large sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came to me. As I stared, I looked into and saw four-footed animals of the earth, wild animals, reptiles, wild birds. I also heard a voice saying to me, Get up, Peter, slaughter and eat. But I said, Certainly not, Lord, for nothing defiled or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice replied a second time from heaven, "What God has made clean, and must not be considered ritually unclean." This happened three times, and then everything was pulled up to heaven again. Now remember, command comply. We're hearing this all again, and it's emphasized. This is important. It's important for them to hear. At that very moment, three men sent to me from Caesarea pr- approached the house where we were staying. The Spirit told me to accompany them without hesitation. These six brothers also went with me, and we entered the man's house. He informed us how we had seen an angel standing in his house and saying, Send to Joppa and summon Simon, who is called Peter, who will speak a message to you by which you you and your entire household will be saved. Then I began to speak, and the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as he did on us in the beginning." I remembered the word of the Lord as he used to say, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Therefore, if God gave them the same gift as he has also gave us after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to hinder God? That's key. Even though Peter has not fully understood and grasps this completely, and even though he will not completely consistently live it out at every moment from this point on, he does know I, who am I to hinder God? If it happened the exact way that it happened for us at Pentecost, then it is of God. When they heard this, they ceased their objections and praised God, saying, so then God has granted the repentance that leads to the life, even to the Gentiles. They know that Peter is not lying. They know Peter won't make all this stuff up as an apostle. They know his character and obedience to God. They know his commitment to the gospel. So he has a reputation. He's been given the authority of God. He has the Spirit himself. And when he merely says, Look, God gave them the Holy Spirit. It happened the same way that it happened for us. Can't argue with that. And kudos to them. Because they say, Wow. Kudos to them that they didn't even see it. They didn't get the visions. And yet, merely hearing Peter say it was enough for them to praise God. And this is where everything changes. There's still going to be resistance against this from the church. And we're going to see that in Acts chapter 15. There's going to be resistance from a large number of the church. And you're going to see very clearly here by the time we get to chapter 15, the difference between those who just merely need to hear Peter's testimony and immediately realize God is doing something different. And those who are going to be around for a long time, seeing God do it over and over again, and are still going to have an issue with it. It doesn't mean that the others are not Christians. It just means that there's something, a certain worldview is so entrenched in them that it's hard for them to overcome. Constable says this, It is clear, however, that not all of those who accepted Peter's explanation also understood the larger issue. Probably few of them did. The larger issue was that God had created a new entity, the church, and that he was dealing with humankind on a different basis than he had for centuries. Those whom God accepted by faith in Christ were now under a new covenant, not the old Mosaic covenant, so they did not need to continue to observe the Mosaic law. It was no longer necessary for Gentiles to come to God through Judaism, nor to live within constraints of Judaism. Opposition to this larger issue, the implications of what happened in Cornelius' home, cropped up later. Chapter 15 in the book of Galatians. Even today, many Christians do not understand the implications of this change and their application in daily life. Tanhill says this, Even though Peter does not convert the first Gentile, the Ethiopian eunuch, The Cornelius episode is a breakthrough for the Gentile mission. The conversion of the Ethiopian was a private and isolated event that had no effect. The conversion of Cornelius has consequences in the following narrative, as the reference back to Acts 15 makes clear. It is a breakthrough not simply because Peter and the Jerusalem church now accept Gentiles for baptism, but also because they recognize the right of the Jewish Christians to freely associate with Gentiles in the course of their mission. The point is that God is establishing a new covenant people. A new covenant people that literally, literally, to its deepest and fullest and broadest implications is not bound by ethnicity, gender, social status, economics in any kind of a way. To speak harshly of, to condemn, to exclude, to isolate anybody of a different ethnicity is an absolute horrific offense to the gospel. To exclude, degrade, speak harshly to of anybody of a social status that is not yours, a gender that is not yours, is absolutely horrific disgrace and salt to the gospel. Christ died on the cross to save all. Christ died to bring all into a new covenant people, to exclude, isolate, treat as a second class, to speak harshly of or demean somebody in any way whatsoever is insulting to Christ, but especially because they are a different gender or a different ethnicity or a different social status than you, is even more horrifically insulting. There is no room for prejudice or racism or passive-aggressive exclusion in any kind of a way. This is what God is doing. This is what's so breakthrough about this. That brings us to the next section. The church at Antioch, chapter 11, verse 19 through chapter 12, verse 25. This section records the spread of the gospel beyond Judea to cities that are contained more Hellenistic Jews and Gentiles. This is happening in A.D. 39 through 44. At the same time, persecution is increasing at the hands of the Roman government. Yet as before, this only leads to an even greater increase of the spread of the gospel of Jesus. So now what we're going to see as the gospel is going further out. Before it was in Jerusalem with the Hebraic Jews and some Hellenistic Jews. Then it begins to branch out to more and more just primarily Hellenistic Jews. Then it branches out more to just Hellenistic Jews with a few Gentiles. Now we're going to go out more where it is only really truly Hellenistic Jews and Gentiles. And this becomes the thing. And where we saw persecution in Jerusalem for the Jewish People. Now we're going to begin to see the persecution from the Roman people as we get spread out. As the people who come into Christ start becoming a different group of people, Gentiles, the persecution that begins to face the church is going to be a different group of people, the Gentiles. And so now we're kind of moving further and further away from Christ. Everything that we've been covering in the first 10 chapters or so has been largely regulated to around 35, 36 A.D., Within a couple of years of Jesus, months, a couple of years of Jesus. Now we're in 39 to 44 AD, and we're getting further and further away from Christ as we spread. Chapter 11, verse 19. Now those who had been scattered because of the persecution that took place over Stephen went as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, speaking the message to no one but Jews, So Phoenicia is the most Gentile-dominated region right above Israel. It's in the northern part of Israel. It contains the major cities of Tyre and Sidon. Um, The the Phoenicians were a great threat to Israel in the First Testament. Uh, And it's, it's, it's going to go to Cyprus. Cyprus is that large island. So if you look in the Mediterranean Sea, in the right part of the Mediterranean, there's this large island. Um, called Cyprus. Cyprus is actually the island that Barnabas grew up on and came from, and it is a largely Hellenistic Jew and Gentile place. And then Antioch is the northernmost city, before you end on the western coast of the Mediterranean, and then make a left turn and start heading on the northern coast of the Mediterranean, which we know today as modern-day Turkey. So we're getting. Further and further away from Jerusalem and to a very, very foreign part of the world for those who are isolated to Jerusalem. But there were some men from Cyprus and Cyrene among them who came to Antioch. Now, Cyrene is in North Africa. And they began to speak to the Greeks too, proclaiming the good news to the Lord Jesus. The hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. A report about them came to the attention of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he rejoiced and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord and devoted hearts, because he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a significant number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas departed for Tarsus to look for Saul. A large number of Greeks Are coming to Christ now. Now that Cornelius' family has come to Christ, the the gates are just opening up and tons of people are coming to Christ. So Antioch was about 15 miles inland from the Mediterranean Sea and 300 miles north of Jerusalem. You can travel about 25 miles a day on foot um, just because you need to take time to break, rest and eat and sleep and that kind of stuff. So we're talking about a multiple-day journey from Jerusalem in order for this to happen. It was the capital of the Roman providence of syria Sicily, uh, north of Phoenicia, and was one of the most strategic population centers of its day. It contained between 500 to 800,000 inhabitants. This is large for this part of the world and this region. It was a significant major city. It was like the New York of this part of the Roman world. It was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. So even though we are hundreds and hundreds of miles away from Rome, Italy, we're talking about the third largest city. Antioch shows up in many writings and many things outside the Bible as a significant city. About one-seventh of the city's population were Jews and many Gentile proselytes to Judaism lived there. Antioch was also notorious as a haven for pleasure-seekers, meaning people who just got off ships and want to find a good time. Now, since the murder of Stephen not only had the gospel expanded beyond Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria, it was beginning to move to the ends of the earth. This would be starting to be considered the ends of the earth. We don't think of it as the ends of the earth, because there's nothing like modern-day technology that makes the world feel very small. But for them, this is the ends of the earth. And it doesn't matter whether you're the ends of the earth, Antioch, or the ends of the earth, India. For them, it's all foreign. It's all out there. It's all different. Barnabas is the only person in acts to be called good. This is huge. Do you remember when the guy came to Jesus and said, good teacher? And Jesus says, why do you call me good? Only God is good. Jesus wasn't denying that he was God. He wasn't denying he was good. He was just getting the guy to really think about what you're saying. If you're calling me good, then you're calling me God. And as a Jewish rabbi, I don't think you're ready to say that. But what God is making, and then of course, good is in creation, God said, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good. Now, we often think of good as like good little boy, good girl. They're such a good kid. Okay? I have an old principal, um, Buzz. And he would always say, he's a good kid. I mean, you know, in that, like, we're all scumbag sinners who've fallen and deserve to go to hell, <laughs> kind of a good kid. So <laughs> that was how he looked. Yeah, Buzz is Buzz, Buzz always so theologically correct and funny oh. and right in your face at the same time. Oh. When God is defining things as good, he doesn't mean morally good. That's not how the Bible uses the word good. Good in the Bible means functioning the way that it was designed to function. I mean, it's not like God looks at the sky and says, Good sky, you're so obedient, right? It means that it's functioning the way that he designed it to function. Humans were good because they were functioning the way they were designed to function. It's not until the fall that things are no longer good because lions ripping things apart and devouring it covered in blood is not good. It's not the way God designed it plagues that wipe across the creation and kill people diseases and and floods and right this is not the way god designed the world to function it's broken now the reason we use it our morality is because god designed you to operate a certain way in mind body spirit emotions and social and so when he comes in the ten commandments he says do not murder I did not design you to kill people for your own benefit. Do not steal. I did not design you to function by taking from people and wounding them. Do not commit adultery. This is not the way I designed you. Therefore, when we say you are a bad person or you're not good, you're not functioning the way that you were designed to function. The way that God designed you to function was to reflect the image of God as a self-sacrificing person who who meets the needs of other people and and builds something outside of themselves for the glory of God. Anytime you say, mine, me, I need, I will do, I don't care about you, I want, that's not the way you were designed. And so this is why morality is just one aspect of how we're not functioning the way that we're designed to function. One can say my body is not good when it's got a cancer in it. That's not the way God designed our bodies to function. But Barnabas is said to be good. Now we know that's not true completely, right? He's still a sinner. He's still flawed. Mm-hmm. But in that, you know, we're all sinners, we deserve to go to hell kind of a sense, <laughs> Barnabas is good. And there's not really anybody else that is, that is said of. Not even Paul. Which means, like, when we see Barnabas in this story, he is functioning the way that God designed him to function. doesn't mean he's perfect. doesn't mean he has any, doesn't have any flaws. It doesn't mean that he doesn't need Jesus any less than anybody else. It just means that when he, overall, people looked at this man and said, this is the way it's supposed to be. This is close to good. That's what we're probably going to see in our lifetime at this point, in this story. And that doesn't mean he's to be lifted up on a pedestal, because that's the very thing that the Bible is preaching against. But what it means is that what he's doing is a model for us to emulate. We are never meant to lift any of these people on a pedestal. We are to look at what they failed and say, how can I not be like that? And we are to look at where they succeeded and say, how am I to emulate that? And then with the Spirit of God, how do I go beyond that? But he's good. This is also the first time that the word Christian is used. It is used only here in Acts and in Second Peter 1, Chapter 4, verse 16, in all the New Testament. When early Christians described themselves, they spoke of being disciples, believers, saints, brothers, sisters, or followers of the way. They were sometimes called Nazarenes, Acts chapter 24, verse 5. They did not call themselves Christians until the 100s A.D. Not in the Bible, other than Peter and Acts. It was the early Christian church father, Ignatius of Antioch, who used it frequently and therefore gained its popularity among the people. Luke uses it here to make a clear distinction between Christians, both Jews and Gentiles, and the Jews who are not followers of Jesus. Thus the term is not ethnic, but is used to communicate religious loyalty. Christians are social, not ethnic. So now we're dealing with new people groups. Before we just had the Hebraic Jews. Now we have Hellenistic Hebraic Jews. Now we have Hellenistic Hebraic Jews and now Gentiles. Now we have Gentiles who are Christians, And Hebraic Jews are Christians. And now we're getting like so many different kinds of mixtures here that now Luke is now using this to say, but they were Christians. And they're not Hellenistic Christians anymore. They're not Jewish Christians anymore. They're Christians. And the word Christian means we are bound together in community and loyalty to each other by a religious devotion to a singular god, not because of an ethnicity, a culture, preferences, hobbies, anything else. The word Christian is used for the first time after the gospel begins to go to the Gentiles. Because now at this point it is ceasing to be something that is just Jewish. Even the Roman Empire thought that the Christian early forms were just Jewish. Like another Jewish sect, um, another Jewish crazy belief that they had. And it's not until the Gentiles start embracing it on a big level that it ceases to become just Jewish and it starts becoming Christian. When they see all this happening, all these new groups, new mixtures starting to come to Christ, or when they hear about it, to be more accurate, when they hear this happening, they remember what Peter encountered. But now this is like way further away. This is happening way more out there. At least Peter could testify with his own eyes and mouth. Now this is happening up there. And so they send somebody to investigate. Now, that is greatly commended. They could have heard it through the grapevine and just said, No, no, I don't accept that. They said, We, we, need, to, we need to see this. And so who did they send? A good man a man that would deal with people a man who himself is a hellenistic jew who did not group in the hebraic sense of pure favoritism judaism a man himself who came from cyprus where this is all happening his own hometown he could say whether these people are legit he's like i know her i grew up with her she sold me a block of cheese when i was a kid right This is the guy who can say, or I at least know about these people through the grapevines. Seven degrees of separation. He's the one that they send up because he's trustworthy. He's a godly man. He's full of the Spirit, just like Stephen was described to be. And they send him up there, and he comes back to report what he has seen. And what he sees greatly encourages him. He's excited about it. And he wants to celebrate it. Things are drastically changing in the church. Now, here's the question. When God begins to do things that are different that we're not used to, when God begins to go outside of our cultural boxes, do we immediately just shut it down and say, no, that's not the way things go? Or do we send godly men and women out to investigate through the leading of the Holy Spirit and ask, does this fit Scripture and what is the spirit speaking to us, and how will we adjust ourselves to it? Because that's still happening. There are people speaking in tongues in a way that we're not used to or familiar with out there. There are people coming to Christ through visions. There are people who are laying on hands and healing people. There are resurrections happening, and everything in the Americanness in us says, no, right? That's all counterfeit. That's all made up, that's exaggeration. Because I have personally seen the counterfeits. Without a shadow of a doubt, it was counterfeit. But I've also seen the real thing from what I, I, the cynic and the skeptic. Now I'm not saying because I'm a cynic and skeptic and I believe it must be true, but there was a lot to overcome in me. But there's still a part of me is like, but it still only happens a little bit, right? <laughs> But I know that's not true. I know that's not true. And I know it's beginning to change. Because as America becomes less and less knowing of the Word of God, and the Word of God becomes less and less prevalent, that's a better way of saying it, and we become more ignorant as a culture, even the Christians are becoming biblically illiterate. Then these things are going to start popping up more and more and more. And as paganism and the occult and that kind of stuff, listen, I teach the occult at school, as in like what it's about, not like, hey, students, let's get together and do the occult. I know how powerful it is. I know how infiltrated it is into our country. I know what it. And as we see that, Christians have lost respect by the way that we live and the way we speak. And the only thing that's going to convince this new generation growing up in a different era is when they see the power of God. And I truly believe where the word is prevalent, these miracles are a little less Because the word is more objective and it's more indisputable. And it can disciple and lead you in a way that a mere miracle cannot. But as the word dies, the miracles go back up to validate the word so the word can grow back up because the word is the truth and the life. And so are we ready for that? Are we ready for a new form of evangelism? A form that's always been there, but not very prevalent. It was ironic, as I was actually thinking about this the other day, our pastor this Sunday like, talked about the exact same thing. I was like, ooh, that's a God moment. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, whenever you like, are thinking about something in here, and then God's present, and then like you hear it somewhere else, and everything in here, and you're like, oh, okay. It's not like we all got together and said, let's think about the same thing this week. They sent a good man, and they validated it. Here's the thing. The same Spirit that is doing all of this, and Jesus... Peter, Philip, Barnabas. All these amazing things that we're like, wow, that's so cool. Is the same spirit that's in us today. The purpose of the spirit is to supernaturally empower you to do the will of God. That's his primary task. What is God's will for us? To know him deeper and better. To obey him and be transformed by the renewing of our minds. To share the gospel and to meet the needs of a broken world. And a bunch of other things. Discipleship as in share the gospel and disciple. But those are the primary things. And a lot of times, me included, I'm a Bible teacher and still there's times. Like, I'm a Bible teacher that's also an introvert with brokenness and so even me sometimes like "Ah, I don't have it in me to go and talk to that person I've got students like I feel very gifted by God to really take students and take them deep and challenge them and disciple them in a way that they haven't really been a lot but I feel very gifted by God to do that with people that are really on board and on fire and want to learn and absorb but where I struggle in my brokenness is the kids that are just bucking. They don't want anything to do with it. They're anti-you and that kind of stuff. And I feel so incompetent. Mm-hmm. I'm good with people in tight one-on-one situations and small groups in my classroom. But to go out door-to-door, like, and yet I have to remind myself, like, the same spirit that is in them doing these things is the same one in me. The same spirit that gives me the ability to do this and speak to my students. And there's so many times I'm like, I go home afterwards and I'm like, oh my gosh, that was God. That was not me. When I researched and did all these studies, I didn't make those connections. And all of a sudden I began to talk and these connections came out and they were so deep and profound. And I'm like, that came from God. That was not me. Why don't I believe that in those other areas? We need to really truly believe like the same spirit that is in them is in us. And the same spirit that gives you this amazing ability to do it in this area, in that area, that we know there's a same spirit that can do it in that area, in that area, in that area. Yes, do some of us have more giftings than others? Yes. But that doesn't mean that any one of you can blow anybody else away in their gifts that the spirit's truly in you. And I don't mean truly in you if you're truly saved, but like you're 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 tapped into it in that moment and really allowing it to take over. The problem is we live in a culture that is just so distracting and so mesmerizing to the human flesh. And the real question that we have to ask ourselves is not whether the Spirit can do this in us, not whether the Spirit is still doing these things, but are we really truly willing to die to the comforts of everything? And as a father of three little girls, that is scary. Absolutely scary. Because as a father of three girls, comfortable is very good (laughs) when you're raising kids. Because safety is everything in my mind. But do I trust God? I think that's what it really comes down to. When I was in seminary, One of the greatest benefits of being in seminary was that I met Christians from all over the world. Christians who were newborn Christians, Christians who had been doing it for years, Christians who were just starting their ministries and young with lots of ideas like me, Christians who had been doing leading churches for many, many, many years in Russia and China and Ukraine and other places in India. And now we're coming back to just get more deeper education so they can go back and take their church even deeper. And I talked to so many people, and it really opened my mind to how Christianity is not bound by America. There are so many things that are happening out there. And one of the things that they told me was I was blown away by their stories of being persecuted, like true persecution, like in jail, body parts being cut off, members of the church burned, family members executed for not, not denying Christ. And I was just like, oh, my gosh. And they're like, you know what? It's way worse for you guys. I was like, what? And they're like, you're being persecuted with comfort and entertainment and amusement. And the, But what it makes it so worse? Now, remember, this isn't me saying I have no right to speak on persecution. These are people who are truly persecuted. And they said, the problem is that you're being persecuted with the things of the world, mm-hmm. but you enjoy it. You enjoy it. And that's what makes it more dangerous. The world is attacking you in the same way that it's attacking us. For us, it's a loss of everything and it's painful, so it makes us cling to Christ all the more. For you, it's comfortable and enjoyable, and it makes you relaxed. And I've never forgot that, and I wrestle with that so much in my own life because I like predictable structures that are safe. (laughs) And that's the real question, not whether the Holy Spirit is still doing this. I think that argument has no grounds, in my personal opinion. Are these things still happening today? Do the gifts still happen today? Yes. The question is, how do we in the culture that we're in tap into that? That's the question we should bring to the Holy Spirit and ask to reveal to us. Verse 27. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them was named Agabus. He stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, each according to his ability, decided to provide help for the brothers living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. When it says it was spread to the entire world, depending on your um, translations, some might say that the, the, the plague would, flag, the famine would affect the entire world. Some of your translations choose to make this the Roman Empire. And the reason is that this is the Greek word hoikomen. And hoikomen refers to basically the inhabited world. Hoikomen is basically the inhabited world. And Luke is using this as an exaggeration because, and if you lived in the Roman Empire, that was the inhabited world to you. The Roman Empire was expansive. And unless you were a trader who made your way into China and India, most people did not have an understanding of anything beyond the Roman Empire. Kind of like we just mentioned, it's kind of like we think America as the entire world a lot of times, or at least Europe and America together. And our way of thinking, our currency, our language has dominated most of the world in a lot of ways that we don't really think of much being outside of a Western kind of mentality. And so this is the way they thought about the Roman Empire. So this is going to spread throughout the Roman Empire. A lot of this part of the Mediterranean world wasn't really rich in agriculture. There was a lot of mountains around these edges. And most, 90% easily of the agriculture in in the Mediterranean, the Roman Empire came from Egypt. And all throughout the ancient world, even the days of Joseph, right? When there was a famine in Egypt, there was a famine everywhere. And everybody was affected. We know that during this time period, there was an actual famine in Egypt where the Nile River pretty much flooded and ebbed and then flooded and ebbed on a predictable rate, on a yearly rate. And it ebbed and flowed in, um, in a regular pattern that wasn't really threatening. But during the reign of Claudius, it flooded in a way that was extreme even for Egypt because Egypt doesn't get a lot of rain. And it wiped out lots of, lots of, lots of crops. And when the Egypt loses its bread, everybody loses its bread. So this doesn't mean that there's necessarily a famine that's in the entire empire, as in a, a lack of rain, we can't grow things in the entire Roman empire. It meant more that there's a famine that Egypt was hit hard, and therefore our imports to help buttress our natural local crops was not enough and this is going to affect everybody that's what's going on here but what's interesting is that this is told to them by a prophet prophets still did exist during the early days of christianity and i believe that they still exist today but they do not exist in the same way that they did in the first testament and the first testament there's a sense where they were truly taken up into what's called the divine council of yahweh where they were brought up into the presence of god And they saw God and the the sons of God, which we would call angels, interacting with each other. And they would come. They were the only ones who were brought up into God's presence. Therefore, they're the only ones who knew God's will. Which means that they were the only ones who could communicate God's will to the people on Earth. Which means that's the only way you can know God's will. And that is what's come to an end. The prophets die out after Malachi, and they go completely silent for about 400 years as the Greek and the Roman Empire is rising up. And then John the baptizer is one of the first prophets to come back on the scene. But we don't get any sense that he was brought onto the divine counsel of Yahweh. He seems, it seems to be more of a uh, an announcer, a spokesperson for the one that has come. We call him prophet because he seems to know a lot about God, and he speaks on God's behalf. But was he truly a prophet brought up in the divine counsel of Yahweh? Don't seem to think so, but we don't know. But it is Jesus that's truly the one who breaks the silence um, because he literally is the divine counsel of Yahweh. And then with the coming of the Holy Spirit, it's placed inside of us. And so in that sense, there's still prophets. In this sense, are there people who are, well, let me back up. So in that sense, we're all prophets because all of us have the Holy Spirit of God living inside of us, which means I am not the only person who can know the will of God and speak it to you, nor are you the only person who can know the will of God. We all could. This is what's meant by the priesthood of believers. The priesthood of believers does not mean I don't need you and I don't need the church. I can stay home and read my own Bible and do my own church because you're all screwed up anyways. Why do I need church? That's how a lot of people like to use it. What the priesthood of believers meant was that we all have access to knowing the will of God, and all have access to having God in us and talking to Him if you've accepted the blood of Christ um, and repented your sins. This is not a prophet like the first Testament prophet. This is a prophet that we are all prophets. However, are there some Christians who are more gifted at sensing and hearing? The voice of god a little bit more clearly they're more in tune to it and, and god speaks to them on a regular basis in unique ways than maybe some other christians yeah i have a problem with that are there people who are more gifted with hospitality and they just seem to have a greater gifting of that and they're more in tune to the needs of other people and see it more quickly than other christians yeah but are all people supposed to be hospitable yes are there some people who are more gifted in teaching and just seem to thrive in that and get that? Yes. Than other, but are we all meant to study and be teachers? Yes. Are there some people who are more gifted in evangelism than other people? And it just they're in tune to it and they see those needs quicker than Yes. But are all people supposed to be it? Yes. Are there people who are more gifted at laying on hands and, and God is just gifted them with this nurse Um, loving kind of medical kind of supernatural ability yes but are we all capable of doing it if the spirit of God works through us yes and so in that sense welcome to the prophets this guy is obviously a prophet and a unique gifting and a unique calling and a unique sensitivity to the voice of God but he is not the only source and if he messes up the whole church isn't condemned um, like it was in the First Testament. If a prophet messed up, everybody was condemned by the actions of the prophet. That's not true. So if you come to me and you say, God told me last night that you're supposed to da-da-da-da-da-da, well, one, you're still required to give signs, just like in the First Testament. And two, I can say, thank you, and I can seek the Spirit out. Now, it might be like, wow, you you can be like, I get the sense that you're thinking about da-da-da-da and feeling da, da 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 And I'm like, oh my gosh, yeah, nobody knows it except for God and I. And then you can speak, and that's a sign. That's a sign in itself. But if you have no sign, and you just tell me I'm supposed to do something, then that means I can go to the Holy Spirit too and ask for Him to confirm that and to validate that. Because we are told very clearly in Deuteronomy 13, 18, and 1 John 4 to test every spirit. That comes and says, I'm coming in the name of God or an angel or Jesus or whatever. And so God used this prophet Agabus to warn the people. Now what's interesting is that the church immediately responded. It's the Antioch church that's gathering this money in order to give it to the people in Jerusalem and they're one of the people. Now this is big because what we're going to begin to see is a shift from the power moving from Jerusalem to Antioch. And the Jerusalem church has been the dominant power um, or the dominant source of hierarchy and leadership because of the apostles and all them kind of stuff. But now it's the people in Antioch, further north. So Antioch is right when the western coast of the Mediterranean begins to curve westward and go over the northern parts of the Mediterranean. You'll see that on your map. And they are beginning to collect the money and they're now providing for the need of Jerusalem. What this verse does is it feels kind of random and out of place, right? We've been learning about Peter getting arrested, and we learn about Herod and all this kind of stuff. And then all of a sudden we're like, oh, and by the way, Barnabas and Saul finally brought the money to the people in Jerusalem. And you're like, what? What it's doing is it's connecting these two worlds together. It's connecting the world of Antioch, the largely predominant Greek Christians, with the world of Jerusalem, the predominant native Hebraic Jewish Christians. And these two worlds are connected because we have Peter, who's in Jerusalem, being arrested by a half-Greek, half-Jewish person, Herod, in the north, close to Antioch, closer to Antioch, and then the people of Antioch are also providing for the people in Jerusalem. And what God is showing here, or Luke is showing, is that these worlds are connected. These worlds are interlinked. And we had Barnabas going up and investigating the churches up there and bringing the report to Jerusalem. Now the Antioch churches bring money to Jerusalem and the Jerusalem churches, and we're, we're seeing an ebb and flow that this isn't just local house churches anymore. This is starting to become known as the universal church, the church that spreads from many different cities, to many different cities. Barnabas and Saul were put in charge of collecting the money that they had gathered to provide for this famine. And they deliver the money to Jerusalem. And so consider this like long-distance missions um, by giving money and helping out people in other countries, even though you will never see them. And that's what they're responding to. And God is giving them this insight in order to help them see that and understand that.